the community time question is a tradition here, so if you're with us, we do mean it when we ask that question. So I, I like to start off with just a poll about the question. The question was, when's the last time you were surprised? So how many of you have been surprised in the last month? Okay, how about in the last week? Anybody surprised in the last 24 hours? Wow, we need to be, we need to surprise each other a little more in here. Some of you probably were involved in surprising your children this morning, which was probably pretty exciting for them. And I, I would be honest to say that I have kind of like a love-hate relationship with surprises. Maybe some of you guys do too. Um, on one hand, I love some surprises that are amazing. They give you the most incredible feeling in the world. You feel so special. Like when someone picks out your favorite ice cream and remembers what kind you like and offers it to you. Or like you find a, that you won a prize for a raffle that you didn't even remember signing up for. That happened to me the other day. Um, or you get a surprise in the way in which you get a card in the mail that's handwritten on paper. That's always a surprise now, isn't it? A handwritten letter? It's a surprise. Or a friend from out of town shows up for a special occasion and you didn't know they were coming and it's a great surprise. But then there are the surprises that cause me to loathe the idea of being surprised. Um, my ultimate loathing surprise is when someone like jumps out of a closet or jumps around the corner. I hate when people do that. And I'm serious, so please don't do that and think it's funny later. I really hate it. And I just don't understand. Or when people come up behind you and they have cold hands and they just put them on your neck. Why do people do that? Or like the surprise that happens when um, a friend comes into town and it's not a great time, and you know what friends I'm talking about, the ones that like to surprise you at the inconvenient moments. And then you're having to deal with those friends being there at the un inconvenient time, and it's not a great surprise, but they might think it is. Some of you have told me that you've had a child that was a surprise, and some of you, it sounds like the jury's out on what type of surprise it is. And I'm just going to let you figure that one out. But the reality is, is as we celebrate Easter, we're celebrating Jesus coming back to life after everyone who knew him thought that he was dead. Everybody thought that he was buried, that he was never going to be seen again. They thought that this movement that he represented, that he called the kingdom of God, was just a dream that was never going to be realized. And his resurrection, the fact that he, he showed up coming out of the grave in the flesh, turned out to be one of the biggest surprises in history. And what's so interesting about that is that Jesus tried to express to his friends that he would return. He didn't necessarily intend for it to be a surprise, yet it became one. Right up until the last night he spent with his friends before his death, he was trying to express to these people that he loves that death wasn't the end of the story. But in many ways, I think it was just too difficult for them to grasp. It was just too much for them to imagine this reality. I mean, if you think about it, they're trying to wrap their heads around the idea that this guy with them is God in the flesh. And I mean, the, the fact that that's true and then that he would die and come back to life for them might just have been a little bit too much for them to comprehend. It might just have been too much of a staggering reality for them to take in. And I'm not sure that's that different for us today, is it? I mean, when we really think about it, do we fully comprehend that the God of the universe loved us so much that he would come to earth and live life as a human and be beaten and killed and conquer death and come back to life in order to take on all the suffering and brokenness of this world? It's kind of a lot to take in, isn't it? 
And I think Jesus is still in the business of trying to express to us that death is not the end of the story. And I think for the disciples at that time, they didn't quite get it. And there's a question for us today. Will we? Let's turn together today to John chapter 13 through 17, and I want us just to try to imagine what it was like to be with Jesus that last night before he died. He's spending this time with his friends, the people who we could suggest are the closest people to him in the world. And in these chapters, it's five long chapters, if you have a Bible that has the words of Jesus written in red like my Bible does, you'll see that these five chapters are almost entirely words that Jesus is expressing from his heart to these people that he loves. And I want to argue today that these are some of the most important words that Jesus spoke in his entire life, right here in these five chapters, on this night before he was going to go to his death. He has spent three amazing years with these people by this time. They have experienced some amazing things. They have seen amazing things, but they've also feared for their life and had devastating loss together. They've seen amazing miracles and rejoiced over them together, like 5,000 plus people fed in one day, and uh, Lazarus coming back from the dead, and countless people who are healed or set free, and they celebrated that together for those three years. But they also feared for their lives together. They also had angry mobs surrounding them with stones ready to throw. They experienced threats of violence. They experienced uh, storms out on open water while they were in a boat that could have drowned them at any moment. And here they are, eating a meal together. On a night that Jesus would know this would be one of the last, the last meal they would have, before the most I guess the worst imaginable scenario you could possibly imagine, which would be that he'd be brutally killed in front of his friends. So you must understand, and we must understand, the urgency in which Jesus was communicating these words to his friends. In these final hours, you have to just picture how urgent it must have felt for him. Picture as he takes each of their dirty feet and he washes them. And he looks them in the eye trying to express love and self-sacrifice and a willingness to serve from such a lowly position. And he says to them, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Can you imagine the intentionality in which he takes the bread and the cup sitting before them? Something that they saw all the time, but he said, I want you to remember me because my body is going to be broken for you and my blood is going to be shed. Can you hear him then, after he does that, just overflowing with love, say this, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I will tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And he continues on in order to, to calm any doubting heart in the room. He declares this. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And maybe you can imagine with me the anguish he must have felt as he was trying to comfort these people who didn't know what was going to happen. And he says to them, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. 
And then with, with earnest, he pleads with them as he uses this illustration of a vine and its branches that many of us are familiar with. He says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And we have to imagine that Jesus is pleading with them here. He's saying, remain in me, which could be translated pretty directly as, stay with me. Stay with me. But Jesus knows that in a few hours, they won't stay. They will scatter. They will run. Not even his, his close friend Peter will be able to overcome the sense of fear that he has in his life, and he won't stay with him. And so Jesus says, stay with me, please. Remain in me. And Jesus knows that they will run out of fear. And before the soldiers come to drag him away, he says this powerful statement. He says, a time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And then Jesus begins to pray for them. And that's the last experience they have with him together before he's taken away by soldiers, brutally bit, beaten, whipped, spit upon, made to carry the, the instrument of his torture upon his bleeding back all the way down this road, and he's hung on this cross, and we have evidence that suggests that it wasn't the cross that killed him, and it wasn't the beatings that killed him, and it wasn't the spear that killed him. The weight of all the brokenness in the world that was weighed upon his body is what killed him. My brokenness and your brokenness and the brokenness that we see in this world every day as we look around. All of that brokenness suffocating Jesus as he died to conquer all of it. And it was in that moment, in that very moment, that Jesus' words were made possible. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. It was in that moment that the world was overcome by the willingness of Jesus to take it all on himself. In that moment. Take heart, I have overcome the world. And he died and he was buried and after three days he came back to life and that's what we celebrate today, isn't it? That he didn't stay dead, that the God of the universe overcame the world, overcame death and conquered everything that would keep us from having a relationship with God. There's this dividing wall that scripture says, a dividing wall of hostility that was torn down when Jesus overcame. And now there is nothing that separates us from being known and knowing God. Trusting Jesus as the way and the truth and the life is this way to be in relationship with a loving God, just like Jesus said. And I wonder what the disciples were thinking, though, because they're left, as Jesus had said all of that, and wondering if anything that he had said in the, what we now say is five chapters of the book of John, was any of it even true? Because here they are, hearing this, in this world you will have trouble, but I have overcome the world, and they knew that in these dark days, all that they saw for those three days was trouble. How can you take heart when your leader has been brutally killed and religious leaders are out to get you too? In John chapter 20, just a couple chapters ahead, the women have already seen the tomb empty. 
And they told the, other, the others about how this miracle that Jesus was just walking in the garden. And they saw him. But fear was still overcoming them so significantly. The women said they saw a Jesus. And they're still hiding in John chapter 20. They're hiding in a room where nobody knows where they are. And they've got all the, do- the, lores- the doors locked so that nobody can get in and nobody knows where they are. Because they're still so afraid. Even after the women had said they had seen Jesus. And so you can imagine their surprise when Jesus just appears out of nowhere, just skipping the whole going through the door thing. He just shows up. And he says to them, peace be with you. And I think that must have felt like a friend jumping out of a closet when you didn't expect it. The doors were locked. And he says, peace be with you, instead of, I know you're completely freaking out. Because you would, you'd be completely freaking out. And of course, they were in shock. But they were just overjoyed and thrilled to see Jesus and he shows them the scars on his hands and his feet and his side to show that it really indeed is him. And I don't know about you, but in these moments, I have to just imagine that Jesus is enjoying the shock factor. I mean, he could have shown up in any way, but instead he decides to just show up in the room just like, boom, peace, check out the scars. Right? Like, whoa. And I just, I I like to imagine that Jesus had a little bit of a sense of humor and the fact that he could just show up, he's kind of punking them a little bit, you know? There's no cameras on that scene, but you can imagine it now as it's being retold. But can you imagine that? Can you imagine looking into the face of a resurrected Jesus? Looking straight into the eyes and the face of love, into the face of hope, into into the face of of courage. And I wonder in that moment with Jesus as they were in shock and disbelief if they remembered his words, if they remembered him saying, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And as Jesus shared these words with his disciples right before he died, I think he was acutely aware, very much so, that they were about to witness one of the most difficult experiences of their life, watching him die. They saw their friend leave, who they thought was the Messiah, But I think that Jesus, when he spoke those words, was also hoping that it would be words that the disciples and all of us as disciples of Jesus for many years would hold on to for years to come after his death and his resurrection, that we would look back on these words and hold on to this important phrase that Jesus gives. And we believe that Jesus is here and present in this room with us right now. And I think that he's pleased that we on this Easter Sunday are looking back on this phrase that he spoke to those that he loved and said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I don't know about you, but for me, it's easier to believe the phrase, in this world you will have trouble. Because I see it all the time, it's all around me. And Jesus didn't say, you might have trouble, or if you happen to come upon trouble. He says, you will have trouble. And I think for many of us, myself included, it's harder to believe his words, I have overcome the world. The trouble of this world causes us to be in a place like the disciples were in those three dark days, just wondering, is our friend actually going to come back? And we, too, wait for Jesus to come back. And I think, if we're honest, we have that same feeling, is that even going to happen? As we try to hold on to hope? And I think that Jesus is so clearly stating here, though, that he has already done it. He has already overcome the world. It's happened, it's happening, and it will happen, is what Jesus is trying to say here. Jesus has overcome the brokenness of the world. Jesus has overcome the brokenness of our lives. 
He will continue to overcome the brokenness of our lives, and he will finally someday completely overcome one day where all things will be restored. And we can have confidence that death is not the end of the story. And we can have confidence that brokenness is not the end of the story. And the truth of the resurrection of Jesus is that we can have resurrection life. And we can have it now. It's not something that we have to wait for. And it won't mean that we won't have trouble. Jesus makes that pretty clear. But it, what it does mean is that we have something that we're invited to do now. There's something that Jesus is inviting us to not just sit and wait for his return to step into. He says so clearly, through the world of trouble that you live in, take heart. Why? Because he has overcome, is overcoming, and will overcome. What does it mean to take heart? I think that's a good question for us. I don't know about you, but I don't often say the phrase, take heart. Um, I have not used that unless I'm quoting this passage. And so in our culture, in our context, that would probably be most clearly translated to have courage. We would say to somebody, have courage. We might encourage our children to uh, have courage when they're facing a bully at school. We might uh, say to one another or to ourselves that we should have courage as we, uh, you know, just step into the life's challenges, just kind of buck up and face it. We need to have courage in the midst of trials. But I'd want to pull a line from the movie Princess Bride here and say, you keep using that word, and I do not think it means what you think it means. Everybody who doesn't know that movie is like, what are you talking about? Brene Brown, some of you might be familiar with her writing, she defines courage in a little bit different way, trying to bring us back to the core of it. And here's a quote from what she has said. Courage is a heart word. The root of the word courage is core, or the Latin word for heart. In one of its earliest forms, the word courage meant to speak one's mind by telling all one's heart. And over time, this definition has changed, and today we typically associate courage with heroic and brave deeds. But in my opinion, this definition fails to recognize the inner strength and level of commitment required for us to actually speak honestly and openly about who we are, about our experiences, good and bad. Speaking from our hearts is what I think of as ordinary courage. Brene is suggesting that courage and vulnerability go together. That it's not about courage, meaning boldness and bravery in the face of danger or something like that, but that vulnerability and courage come together. And you see then the word take heart as so deeply connected with this definition of courage. It's a heart word. Jesus wasn't saying, in this world, you will have trouble, so pick up yourself by your bootstraps, right? He wasn't saying, put on a happy face and make it work. He wasn't saying, be strong, don't show any weakness. And he certainly wasn't saying, laugh in the face of danger. No, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, so take heart, have courage. And Jesus is inviting us into something completely different. He's inviting us into vulnerability with him and vulnerability with others, being completely real with God and the people that God's put in your life. Being honest. Being able to say what you struggle with, what your doubts are, what your fears are. And it's from vulnerability that we can reach surrender. And it's from surrender that our hearts are filled with courage. And it's from courage that we're able to grow in vulnerability yet again. Roland, put up that, that uh, diagram for me. It's this type of life, this is the cycle of life, where we have courage that leads to vulnerability, that leads to surrender, that leads again to courage, to vulnerability, 
to surrender. And this is what it looks like, I think, to live in a cycle of freedom as one who trusts Jesus. This is what it looks like, I think, to be people who experience emotionally healthy spirituality, as some of us have been talking about for the last few weeks. To be people who are in this cycle of, yes, coming with vulnerability that leads to a place of surrender, and our hearts are filled with courage that leads then to more vulnerability, more surrender. And it is true that it is counterintuitive that if you think about being willing to pour out your heart, that it would then be filled again. But if we pour out our hearts to God, a God who loves us, then the promise is that our hearts would be filled with courage. The courage to face the world with all of its troubles, knowing that we walk on ground that has already been won by Jesus who overcame. The kind of courage that leads us into our life, waking, living, stepping through a world that has been overcome a world that is being currently overcome, and a world that someday will be completely overcome. And it's going to be something that is restored, this world, back to something even more amazing than its original creation. And you and I will be restored back to something even more original than how humans began because of what Jesus has done and what he is doing and what he will do. And so our invitation is relatively simple. Will we be vulnerable and real with God? And that's hard because sometimes we feel like we're still searching for him. But will we still choose vulnerability? Will we surrender to God even though we don't understand it all? Because we never will. And it's going to take some faith to do that. But then will we be willing to pour out our hearts so that God can offer us and fill our hearts with a type of courage in which we can face anything, anything, the type of courage that reminds us that we aren't alone, The kind of courage that screams brokenness is not the end of the story. The kind of courage that gives us strength through depression and illness and all of these things that we face in our lives. The kind of courage that offers hope even in the midst of the most discouraging of circumstances. The kind of courage that shines light into the darkest nights and says, we are overcomers, not because of ourselves, but because we're with Jesus. That kind of courage. Jesus overcame it all and will lead us through this life of trouble. And then I think we will experience what I want to call take heart moments. I think we will experience take heart moments, moments where our hearts are filled with courage as we hold on to hope, moments where we see God's kingdom breaking through into these desolate kingdoms of this world. And when that happens, we realize that we are overcomers in Jesus who is the one who is overcoming and won't ever stop. I see take heart moments happen in this community all the time. If you're someone who's visiting with Mill City Church, let me tell you about just a couple of those take heart moments. There was a take heart moment on Monday when uh, what we call our refugee missional community welcomed a family from Somalia to this country. There was a take heart moment as you watched this family hug their family members from Somalia that they hadn't seen for years. And you look into their face and you see that their journey to freedom is over. And and the way in which this missional family on mission from our community was opening up their hearts vulnerably. It took vulnerability to open up their hearts to this family that they didn't know, looking into the face of these tired people and seeing that those tired travelers open their hearts back up to them as well. That's a take heart moment. And I see take heart moments in our community all the time when some of you are facing some of the most significant battles you've ever faced. 
I think of my friend Ryan May as he's been diagnosed with MS and he's just stepping into life. What does it mean with this reality and the fact that he's losing parts of himself? And he trusts God in the midst of that and he continues to surrender himself to who Jesus is in his life. And he gives of his time and his heart to his kids and to his family. And then with the limited energy that he has, he continues to spend time with people who have less than him. And he spends nights with people who are sleeping in Elam Church when it's too cold to be outside. Those are take heart moments. A take heart moment is a moment that I see all the time in many of your lives as you continue to turn towards God and seek him in the midst of pain and brokenness, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of your questions and your doubts and your cynicism and your fears and your frustrations, and you turn to God and you hold on to hope that God can be found in the darkness. Those are take heart moments. And when we look around, we see that God is inviting us in to take heart moments all the time. And if we step into those take heart moments, then we are living a resurrection life. That's what that looks like, where we can look at the resurrected Jesus right into the face of hope and love and courage, and we can be honest and vulnerable and real, and we can express all our troubles and all of our fears and all our failure and all of our pain and our heartache and our burdens and our shame, and we can take heart because he has overcome. And the most courageous thing, the, the most vulnerable thing, the most uh, surrender moment we can have is to give our life to Jesus. Because that's the ultimate vulnerability. That's the ultimate courage. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So whether it's the first time for you or the 500th time, we all have that choice if we're going to, to give our lives to Jesus, to surrender, to be vulnerable to empty our hearts to a God that can fill it again with courage. So today, my friends, take heart. Yes, there is trouble all around us in this world, but Jesus has overcome. He is overcoming, and he will overcome. And so you too, if you choose Jesus, are overcomers. Amen?